0: So it's um, Memorial Day, and in the last month or so I've actually given a couple of talks about war and peace, not the novel, but uh, (laughs) Kosovo and the other things that may be on people's minds. So I don't want to do that exactly tonight, but I want to honor Memorial Day first by reading from one of these books there are a number of them um, which are publications of the Smithsonian Institution that gathers all the offerings left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial um, as if it were an altar of a temple which it is and there are pictures and teddy bears and medals there's someone who left their congressional medal of honor here saying that the fighting in Central America The Americans were on the wrong side and he didn't want to be a hero in this country anymore. That was some years ago. All kinds of things. And in this particular one, it's a picture, a colored picture, of a Vietnamese soldier and his daughter who looks to be about six years old. And a handwritten note. Dear Sir... For 22 years, I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old. That day we faced one another on the trail in Chulai. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me so long armed with your AK-47, and yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was just trained to do so. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter, each time my heart and gut spurn with the pain of grief, guilt, because I have two daughters myself now. And I perceive you as a brave soldier who was only defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm alive and here today. It is time for me to continue the life given to me and to release my pain and grief and guilt. Please forgive me. Forgive me, sir. And I read that not to dishonor the people who have fought for things that they value and treasure, and care for, protect things of value. Um, but just to remind us of what the cost is, not only in those who've died, but all who participate. Because more of Vietnam veterans, for example, died of suicide after the war when they returned than are named on the memorial. Last week, for those who did come here, my teacher from the forests of Malay Peninsula, Ajahn Jamnian, taught. Usually he's kind of ebullient and joyful and teaches uh, um, meditations of different kinds, but he went on a kind of shaggy Buddhist story last week for two (laughs) hours told, the the Buddha's leaving home in search for enlightenment, a kind of ascetic story. And I thought about it tonight as well, because um, going into the military, which people have done over the centuries, um, is another form, is a form of initiation for man. And what Ajahn Jemnian spoke about last week was a different form of initiation, which Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. Not just for man, but for women as well. And we live in a culture where not much is offered in the way of initiation, so that young men go out and try to prove themselves with guns on the streets or drugs or cars, you know, um, because there's no way to prove yourself. Um, And there's terrible tragedy when real initiation isn't offered and people try to initiate themselves. My daughter's class, her eighth-grade graduating class from middle school, is in a rites of passage program, which includes councils talking about how they're going to change their lives in high school, and a long, long hike out to a waterfall in Point Ray, six hours coming and going, where they all plunged under the water and made um, prayers for how they were going to change their lives. And then next week, um, the eighth-graders are going to meet Um, near Muir Beach at Slide Ranch and put into the ocean at dusk, um, just uh, as the sun sets, some arrows tied onto them, things they're ready to let go of. And then they're going to do a night hike up Mount Tam in the dark and get to the top at dawn, make some new prayers and arrows that they offer to the sun that comes for what they plan to do as they become now teenagers in high school. And the work I've done with uh, young men from the inner cities, especially on retreats, people who've been in gangs and so forth, there's such a desire among young people to be seen and respected and honored and find their place. But it's not just young people, it's everyone. And in all cultures, there is a, a journey that has preoccupied humans since Forever, which is to find that which is sacred, holy, timeless, something that takes us beyond the small sense of ourself and the world to something greater, to touch that or connect with that. And although it takes many forms, it's always a movement from the world in which we find ourselves, where we're often lost on automatic pilot, just doing what we were told to do, unconscious, to touch that which is sacred or great or vast, and then to bring it back, to integrate it into our lives. Holy really means whole, not separate or cut off, wise in all the realms. And if one undertakes a spiritual path in some way, there's meditation to calm and quiet oneself and release a certain amount of stress and become in touch with one's body and one's heart, all very good things. But if one undertakes it in a more important way, I would say, um, then you participate in this great journey of initiation, which is a human one. And this journey has, for the sake of conversation this evening, six stages The first is a kind of renunciation. That is, that one looks around at one's life and becomes somehow disenchanted. This is what Ajahn Jamnian spoke about last week. That ordinary life may be okay, it may even be pretty good, but there's some sense that there must be more, or that something's missing, that the potential in us for greater compassion or wisdom or aliveness. Is yet to be fulfilled. For some people it's looking around the world, there's a kind of cultural sadness. Um, part of it's because we live in such a consumer society. You know, Thoreau said, beware of any activity that requires the purchase of new clothes. Right? <laughs> And Alex de Tocqueville, when he traveled in America, writing about it 150 years ago in the New American Civilization from France, he said, he wrote, it is possible to have outer liberty and still be enslaved. The time may come when men and women in America are carried away by the pursuit of wealth and lose all self-restraint in their exclusive anxiety To make a fortune, they will neglect their chief business, which is to remain their own masters. So one sees that. Or perhaps one looks out, you know, and sees the wars in Kosovo and Africa, Europe and Africa, and still in Asia, Afghanistan, places like that, Middle East, you know, the racism in our own culture. Or one reads this list, all species of jaguar, all African gorillas, the giant sable antelope, the giant armadillo, three species of kangaroo and five of leopard. 13 species of monkeys, all orangutans, four of rhinoceros and eight of whale, six of wolf and seven of gazelle, the Asian lions, 12 of crocodiles, the endangered species list in which we carry in ourselves the knowledge that something is out of balance. Or maybe the renunciation comes because of the personal suffering in our lives, Uh, someone becoming ill, people we love dying. Um, Karma, it's said, can change like the swish of a horse's tail. Praise and blame, poor and rich, pain and pleasure, gain and loss, they change all the time. One day when the sultan was in his palace in Damascus, a beautiful youth who was his favorite boy rushed into his presence. Crying out in great agitation, he must flee at once to Baghdad, imploring leave to borrow his majesty's swiftest horse. The sultan asked why he was in such haste, because the youth answered, as I passed through the gardens of the palace just now, death was standing there, and when he saw me, he stretched out his arms as if to threaten me, and I must lose no time in escaping from him. The young man was given leave to take the sultan's horse and fly, and when he was gone, the sultan went down indignantly into the garden and found death still there. How dare you make threatening gestures at one of my favorites, he cried. But death, astonished, answered, I assure your majesty I did not threaten him. I only threw up my arms in surprise at seeing him here because I have a tryst with him tonight in Baghdad. And there's some way in which we know that also to be true, if we look honestly in this human life. So in this, because we are at the mercy of change, of death, of great forces around us, and we see things out of balance, there comes a desire to step out of the mainstream, at least inwardly, a sense that there must be some other way not just running around getting things or doing things, which can have its place, but really listening to what our human place could be on this earth, in the stars, and the cosmos. And sometimes it's lonely because it's not always with the people that are around us. Don Jose Rios, who was an old Huichol Indian shaman from the mountains of Mexico, Um, I sat in his peyote circles some years ago. When he came the first time to America, he was 103. He said, I've practiced my apprenticeship for 84 years. Many times have I gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I've endured much suffering in my life, yet to hear the voices of the gods, you must do this, for it is not I who can teach you the ways of the gods. The gods are heard only alone, only in silence." I had the opportunity to have dinner and spend some time with Carlos Castaneda a couple of years ago um, before he died. And it was a kind of amazing gathering in San Francisco. It was a small group of us and it was Ramdas before his stroke and Jerry Brown and uh, Angelus Arian and and, um, Fritjof Capra and various kind of transpersonal and spiritual people, so forth, along with Carlos, you know. Fritjof Kopper asked him if he really jumped off that cliff. He said, of course I did, and started to tell the whole story over again. But anyway, he was talking about how Don Juan made him go out in the desert, you can believe it or not, and face the truth about himself, to sit alone, and in particular, to try to come up with his chief fault, place where he was most lost in his own sense of himself. And he answered Don Juan, he said, well, you know, if I were to first talk about it, I'd say I'm a bit uh, talkative and proud. And he said, Don Juan, looked back at me. And he said, if you want to start, how about short and homely? LAUGHTER <laughs> So the first stage is really looking at our life and sensing that there's some other way to live in this world, some other possibility. And the second is really looking for the truth. It's called the sacred question. And each of us will find our own sacred question. What is peace? Or how can I love well? For Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, it was going and working in the concentration camps at just the end of the war seeing the remains of children's clothing there in huge piles, wanting to understand about birth and death, spent her whole life trying to understand death. But birth is the same thing. In India, there's a saying that the child in the womb sings the song, Oh, let me remember who I am. And then as soon as it's born, its first cry after birth is, Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. So the question might be, who am I? In Zen, they ask, what is the face that was there before your parents were born? Your original face. Or what does it mean to be free? Or what could heal this world? This world that is entangled in a lot of greed and hatred and delusion. What would bring healing? what would be your contribution or mine to this world? And this is not a small question, but it comes if we undertake the journey genuinely. It comes as a kind of responsibility or a longing that we really want to wake up and know something that's true in our life. Annie Dillard writes, In the highlands of New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, A British district officer named James Taylor contacted a mountain village above 4,000 feet whose tribe had never seen any trace of the outside world. It was the 1930s, he described the courage of one villager. One day on the airstrip that was later hacked out of the mountainsides near this village, this man cut down vines and lashed himself under the fuselage of Taylor's airplane shortly before it took off with the vines. He explained calmly to his loved ones that, no matter what happened to him, he had to find out where it came from. Imagine that. I really want to know to that extent. And somewhere in us is that question, that sacred question of how we love well, or what it means to be free, or what our gift to the world might be. But to follow it requires, in this third step, some vehicle, not just to follow our habit or our ordinary way, some discipline or some practice, some vehicle to break open the shell of our conditioning, of our small sense of self of what's sometimes called the body of fear, the way we live in our daily unconscious habits. And it can be meditation or initiation. There are all kinds of shamanic journeys that are described from the Eskimos going out in the dead of winter and building a little snow hut and sitting for a month without food and just waiting for the great spirit to come or the Native American Sundance. In meditation, one undertakes also in the simplest way to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth and face whatever arises, no matter how long it takes, to really sit in the immovable spot. Um, And boredom and loneliness and all the different things within us that have been run away from start to come. Show themselves. Annie Lamott writes I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour, eight words over and over, and every line feels different, feels cared about, experienced as if as she is singing it. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch and thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes, 45. <laughs> Forty-five minutes later, she is still singing each line distinctly, word by word, until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure, with attention to each syllable as life sings itself. But that kind of attention is the prize. And so it takes that in some way, some discipline, in which we give ourselves to this process of opening the heart, the mind, the body. Gandhi called it manual labor. You know, it's the labor of parenting when you wake up in the middle of the night and tend a sick child no matter what. That's like meditation. You're just willing to do it over and over and over again. Or Mother Teresa, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual I can only love one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. Just one, one. So you begin. I begin. I picked up one person, but maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you, same thing in your family, in the church where you go, in your community, just begin one, one, one. Do something beautiful with your life. So there's the outer bravery, and there are many forms in initiation, you know, that one can be aware of. And what this journey that we're speaking of, the The journey of the heroine or the hero is really the inner journey. We sit in meditation, we do our prayers, whatever we've chosen, a thousand, thousand times coming back to the breath, the pain, the, the distractions of the mind, the grief that we carry that's unfinished in us, that lets us, that holds us so we can't live fully and we do this not by force or ambition because that's the old way but with the sincerity of our heart to really understand anew karl fried durkheim spoke of this he said the person who is really on the way when they fall upon hard times in the world will not as a consequence turn to those friends who offer them refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. So it means in the practice that we've undertaken here, a willingness to meet our life over and over with presence, a kind of full and open awareness. And with the greatness of heart, To meet the suffering of the world with soul force, as Martin Luther King said. Overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of pain that was entrusted to you, say the Sufis. Like the mother of the world, each is a part of her heart. And therefore each of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy and compassion instead of self-pity. So in this journey, there is a deep, there's a renunciation from the world, stepping back and asking what we can make of this human life. There's a sacred question. There's undertaking some practice or discipline over and over to help us face the things that limit us. And then for anyone who undertakes a genuine practice, whether it's meditation or marriage, whether it's parenting or being an artist or an entrepreneur, there will inevitably be difficulties and hardship. And this is the next step facing the hardship or difficulties. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. That's from the Hindu tradition. Ajahn Javnian, my teacher last week, spoke about it as Mara, which is the uh, Indian personification. Mara is the god who represents temptation, aggression, um, the shadow, um, evil, all of those sorts of things. And Mara is actually kind of amazing because Mara doesn't just come to the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree in that great myth. The minute you sit down at Spirit Rock and close your eyes, Mara says, oh good, and appears. It's quite fantastic. And Mara comes as sleepiness and boredom and doubt, I can't do it, and distraction. And Mara comes as temptation. Oh, you know, if only, if only it were a little warmer in here, it's too cool. If only it were a little cooler, you know, it's gotten too stuffy, I could meditate. If only I had a cappuccino before I sat. I could really do it right. You know, if only I had more money, I could go on retreat and then I'd get enlightened. For Mara, this moment is never right. It's something you need, something else. Or Mara comes as fear and judgment. You sit and you're doing it wrong, or you're afraid, or you can't face it, or aversion. And you sit and it comes in every kind of storm were subtle temptations of all different kinds. This is Kabir, he writes. Kabir is a great Indian poet and mystic. He writes, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day how well woven was the cloth. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage. Now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to free itself, it still holds on to things. Kabir says, listen, my friends, stop. There are very few that find the path, yet it is right here in front of us. So this is Mara coming in every form. The fears that we haven't faced, the longings within us, the unfinished business of our past. We sit under our tree of enlightenment and all the things that catch us up in this world will come. And what we're asked to do is to sit like the eye of the storm in the center of it. Rachel Raman writes that in bullfighting there's a place in the bullring where the bull feels safe. If he can reach this place he stops running and can gather his full strength. He's no longer afraid. From the point of view of the matador he becomes dangerous. This place in the Bullring is different for each bull and it's the job of the matador to be sure that the bull does not have time to occupy this place of wholeness. This safe place is called the Kerencia. I suppose for human beings, the carencia is also there to be found in meditation. When a person finds this center in full view of the matador or mara, they are calm and steady and wise. They've gathered their strength around them. Their eyes are open and the stillness is more secure than any hiding place. So this is the task to find that center in us that can see joy and sorrow and longing and letting go. Agitation and peace. All of these things rise and fall like waves of the ocean and rest with compassion in the midst of them. The equilibrium of a shaman. You know, Ramakrishna, who was a great Indian sage of the last century, and a kind of bhakti devotional master who would go into trances and chant the name of the goddess for a year at a time. He was sitting by the banks of the Ganges River, and we have some pictures of Ramakrishna, so he was kind of in photography, historical time. He was sitting by the g- banks of the Ganges River, and he'd been praying for um, a sign from the Divine Mother, the great goddess who creates all things. That was, that was what he worshipped, um, to show herself to him so that he would know that his prayers were really connecting properly. He prayed for a vision of the Great Mother, the Divine Mother. And as he sat in his meditations and chanting day after day, all of a sudden the waters of the Ganges rivers parted and out of the waters rose this huge body of a naked woman with long, streaming dark hair and water pouring out of it and great big dark eyes who looked right at Ramakrishna and spread her legs. And out of her body began to give birth to the world, plants and trees and animals and humans, looking right at him. And then she reached down and picked up a baby and put it in her mouth and started to chew on it. And the blood ran down her, her lips and down her breast and she continued to look at him. And then as she looked at him, she sank beneath the waves. And that was his vision. So Mara comes to the Buddha and to each of us in our own way. Um, the truth of life will come, which includes old age and illness and death and warfare and, and endangered species, and also includes love and um, unspeakable creativity and beauty and, and uh, um, the kind of moments in nature Or the creative moments of music or art that crack your heart open. And what's asked is to bring an awareness that allows all of this to not put a single thing out of our heart. As we sit, to see our own fear and loneliness and wounds and grief, and see the sorrows of the world, the suffering the racism, and find this capacity, this new way to touch life. Jogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you look into space. What are you? Who are you? What is this awakened heart? If you really look, you won't find anything solid. If you search for the awakened heart, put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it. There's nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you may feel a tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is like pure raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. And yet, it is this tender heart of the spiritual warrior, and only this, that has the power to heal the world. In Tibet, one of the ways of practice is to pray for difficulties and hardship. May I be granted appropriate sufferings so that my heart opens fully with compassion and I awaken on this path. Imagine asking for it. And in this practice of awareness that we have joined in here for this evening or longer as those who have. There comes an alchemical transformation where Mara is transformed like lead into gold. (coughs) Thomas Merton put it this way. He said, true prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. In that place, there comes finally the capacity for forgiveness of ourselves, of others around us, of life for being the way that it is. And in the images that are painted of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, Mara is there with his armies throwing spears and shooting arrows and all the attack of the forces of aggression and fear and temptation that we all face in seeking the freedom of the heart. And the Buddha lifts up his hand and touches each spear or arrow with his fingers. And there's usually a little little kind of line that's drawn, a gold or a red line from his fingertips to his heart. Touches each one with so much compassion that it turns into flower petals, and drops at his feet. When I was in Hawaii a couple years ago, I went to Puahonua Ohonau now, which is the Hawaiian name for the temple of refuge or the city of refuge on the volcanic black lava coast of the big island. One of the main temples. And there's the king's pool, the pools for the ali'i, for the chiefs, chieftains, and so forth, the priest's temple. And one of the remarkable things about that place is that it was in that culture such that no matter what you had done wrong, if you killed a person or broke the worst taboo, if you could find your way into that temple... If you could get there, you would be taken in by the priests and forgiven and given your life back. And I began to wonder as I was in there, does this place still work? You know, can we still do it? And what would it be like to build temples of forgiveness instead of more prisons than schools? This is the last lesson, says Don Juan or Don Janeiro. Only the love of this splendorous life can give freedom to a warrior spirit. And this freedom is joy, efficiency, and abandon in the face of any odds. This is the last lesson, the transforming power of our own love and awareness. It is always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then... Does it make sense? Renunciation or turning from the ordinary way of the world, a sacred question, a practice, a discipline, a way of transforming the heart, the encounter with Mara and discovering this possibility of touching all of life with compassion rather than running from it. And then transformation, the next step, awakening in a moment, letting go, surrendering, dying a little bit, opening, stepping beyond the small sense of self and the little beliefs we have. So remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi holy fool, when he went into the bank to cash a check and they said could you please identify yourself so he reached in his pocket and pulled out a small mirror and said yep that's me all right (laughs) we have so many ideas about who we are and they limit us tremendously this sense of self that's kind of encrusted But there is a possibility, not through fighting, but through opening in love and compassion and great freedom, for finding an absolute peace in this world with oneself and all the earth and with birth and death itself. To discover that what we've longed for is not something or someone or some special thing that we can possess, but what we most deeply seek is this wholeness of knowing who we are and finding our place. So Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer because of the physical or the spiritual agony, but that's all right. If I die, if I suffer, that's all right. You know, that's just suffering Buddha, sun Buddha, moon Buddha, happy Buddha, sad Buddha, all of the different experiences held in this great awakened heart. Annie Dillard again. She writes, there were no formerly heroic times and there was no formerly pure generation better than our own. There is no less holiness at this time than there was the day the Red Sea parted or that day in the 30th year in the fourth moon on the fifth day of the month as Ezekiel was a captive by the river Chebar when the heavens opened and he saw visions of God. There is no less enlightenment under the tree by your street than there was under the Buddha's Bodhi tree. There is no less might in heaven or on earth than there was on the day that Jesus said made arise to the centurion's daughter or the day Peter walked on water or the night Muhammad flew to heaven on a horse. In any instant, The sacred may wipe you with its finger. In any instant, the bush may flame. Your feet may rise. You may see the souls hanging in the airs about you. In an instant, you may avail yourself of the power to love your enemies, to accept failure, slander, or the grief of loss, to endure torture. Purity's time is always now. Purity is no social phenomena, a cultural thing whose time we've missed, whose generations are dead so we can only buy shaker furniture. Each and every day the divine voice issues from the desert, says the Talmud, of eternal fulfillment. If it is not seen in the present, it cannot be seen at all. And so there comes an awakening and maybe many, many times, it's come to you already in some way or other, a sense of the eternal, a sense of that which is timeless, which isn't your thoughts and fears and small sense of self, but of resting in that which is holy and true. And from this place, one is no longer a seeker, but one who is at rest. And wherever this is discovered becomes a great temple. And no matter where you are, that becomes the place for you. There comes a sense of the perfection of life, even with its sorrows, and your need to respond to them is included in that perfection. When we have awakened to real freedom of heart, to that which is timeless, that's always here, the reality of the present, and when we have touched our fear and sorrow and aloneness and death and emptiness, when we've allowed fully our joy and hopes and rapture and life, there comes a kind of fearlessness. that is is the invitation of this journey of wholeness. And from that, we are naturally drawn back to the world, to integration, to return. In the beginning, mountains are mountains, and rivers are rivers. In the middle of the journey, mountains are no longer mountains, and rivers are no longer rivers. And in the end of the journey, again, mountains are mountains, and rivers are rivers. But because we've touched the realm of death and birth, of grief and emptiness and fullness, all of those things, we become a sage, a wise woman, a healer, a bodhisattva, as one who's journeyed through the earth and seen the things of this world and can rest in their midst with compassion. So I see the invitation of meditation, of the retreats that we offer, of the sincerity of people who choose a spiritual life to be a great thing in this world, that this world really needs such a thing. Scientists see more quickly than anyone else that there's no technological fix to this world, no magic bullet, not the internet or computers that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, poison by pollution, continuing warfare and extinction of plant and animal species. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals, than those that have been driving us and our consumer economy. And when one finds this wholeness, then life begins to change like the rudder of a great ocean liner turning. The whole course of one's life changes. And what brings you happiness changes. The happiness is really out of the heart because in the end the question's that we ask if you're with someone when they're dying consciously are so simple. Did I love well the people around me, the earth that I was born into? Did I live fully? And maybe in the end did I learn to let go? Because if not, you have what's called a crash course. At the end of the Zen ox herding pictures, it's finding the sacred ox in the forest and then taming the ox and eventually disappearing oneness in the forest. And the last picture is this monk walking out of the forest with a big grin on his face and his staff. He says I go to the marketplace with my wine bottle and return home with my staff and I visit the shops in the market and all whom I look upon become enlightened. And it's this heart that sees the Buddha in every being. The Buddha is not just here or someplace in India, but sees that Buddha nature in the eyes of every being that we meet. Just as if, said the Buddha 2,500 years ago, one who is faring through the forest, through the great woods, should see an ancient path, an ancient road traversed by people of former days. Even so have I, O monks, seen an ancient path, an ancient road traversed by the rightly enlightened ones of former times. So it's not just that Buddha, but all of us as Buddhists. And in fact, one of my favorite sayings at the end of several of the Buddhist texts, the Buddha says that if human beings practice wisely or rightly, the earth will not be free of enlightened beings. If we pay attention and look deeply, we too can awaken and the earth will not be free of awakened beings. So let's sit for a moment. from the Tao Te Ching. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you, and even when death comes, You are ready. I suppose what would be honorable on Memorial Day would be to respect those people who gave their lives to something that they really valued, even if at times it was misguided, and to think about what we really value, which might be peace instead of war, or whatever it is for your heart, and what it would mean to give our lives to that. A couple of more um, brief announcements. I'll be doing the Dharma talk next Monday night and then the following week I'll be sharing Monday night with a young Tibetan Lama named Adzum Rinpoche who's his first visit out of Tibet who's supposed to be a incarnation of some great teacher and he's in his 20's so he's sort of a young upstart enlightened Lama and hopefully we'll have fun. And who knows what could happen? Um, I know there are a number of new people here this evening, and I'm particularly happy to welcome you to Spirit Rock. When I was coming in to park my car, somebody said, "Oh, there are a number of people who drove in and said they saw the sign and wondered what was happening tonight." So we said, "Come on in. You're really welcome. Anyone who sits here is welcome to walk the land and." Make this one of the places that nourishes your spirit or your heart. Um, please try a retreat, those of you who have been practicing for a while. There's uh, something quite remarkable about having a few days or a week or ten days or longer <laughs> with nothing to do but listen inside and, and walk in the woods and stuff. It's quite fantastic. Um, Please drive carefully when you go out. Remember to turn right on the highway and then go, down, go around through Woodacre because it's safe to do that. It's dangerous to turn left out there. This is West Marin's Speedway. Um, and the last is that uh, Marsha needs a ride to Fairfax. Can anyone give a ride to Fairfax? <coughs> yes, thank you. Would you meet Marsha up here by this... Uh, st- um, let's see by the first of these lights closest to me and Marsha come up for that Um, let's do a little chant and then we'll go out into the uh, spring Mm -hmm. evening Mm. the chant is uh, Sanskrit and it goes Om Mani Padme Hum Om means the universal sound it's the sound of the oceans and Mani means jewel, and padna means lotus. The jewel is in the lotus, and hum is kind of an exclamation, so be it. And one simple translation, the jewel is the jewel of the awakened mind, the clarity of this mind, and the lotus is the heart. So the awakening of our mind rests in the heart of compassion, or the vision and understanding and clarity that this mind can offer us um, when it rests in the heart, the lotus of the heart, then our life is in harmony. So we'll chant it for a little bit and then we'll go out into the evening.
1: Om Om. Mani Padme. Om. Om. you chant,
0: you can feel yourself if you wish, offering it as a prayer or blessing for people in difficulty, for people who are fighting on any side of a conflict, for people who are in danger, for those you love.
1: Om, Om. Mani Padme Om for the earth, Om Mani Padme Hu. Times. Om Mani Padme Om
0: May you take time to really listen to your heart, find your deepest values, freedom, compassion, and live your life every day from that inspiration. Thank you. Good night.